This sermon, Pray and Prepare for Revival, was preached by guest pastor Dustin Smetona on January 16th, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. What a privilege to be with you, Sovereign Grace Church of Tucson. Uh, big thank you to your pastors and all of you for inviting us out here to spend a weekend with you. Chris and I have had a blast. That's been a, uh, a race. It's been very uh, quick but fun. And uh, we've enjoyed our time, especially with Derek and Donna. They've been wonderful hosts. And listen, I, I mean, I, I, my time with your worship team yesterday, just by the way, if I, could, I, I wish you all could have been there to see the kind of people that they are who are serving you up here on Sundays. People who uh, most of their service to you happens outside of this service. They're spending time listening to the songs and studying and planning and thinking and working on their, their instruments and their skills. And they're doing all that because... They love the Lord. That came through really clear to me yesterday. And they love you. They love you. And, and that's the kind of worship team you want. <laughs> okay, a worship team filled with people who love the Lord and who love you. And I'm glad to report that you've got that. And so I had, I think I got more from them than I gave to them yesterday. It was such an encouragement. And uh, I, I do bring greetings from Southern California. I uh, bring greetings from the churches there. Again, your partnership with us, so meaningful. Derek and Donna were with us in October at our California celebration. Derek came to preach. And my goodness, that has had a lasting impact. A lasting impact. And then the Holtons, uh, not only are they dear friends of uh, ours and gospel partners, but, but God really has, through the partnership between our two churches in a particular way, planted a new gospel preaching church. That's the fruit of your ministry, your investment in them, your giving. That's how God did it. So, so thank you. What a, privilege to, what a privilege to partner with you in that way. And then, well, Derek and Tim are just good friends, and we get to share a lot, uh, a lot of counsel, a lot of encouragement from them. Uh, we cherish this relationship, and to get to be here and express our partnership in another tangible way is such a privilege. So, so thank you. Thank you for how your ministry here is impacting Southern California. That's what I want you to hear loud and clear from me. What you're doing here, like Derek shared for Thessalonians, rippling all the way out to Southern California, and I'm sure even beyond. So keep doing, keep doing what you're doing. It's working. All right. God's using it. All right. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 85. Psalm chapter 85. And while you're turning there, a question, a question. What, what areas of your life would you like God to hit the fast-forward button? Call them to mind. What areas of your life do you wish God would hit the fast-forward button? Where are you stuck? Where are you stuck? Just a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with my six-year-old son, who you now have seen. Uh, my six-year-old son, he, he had gotten himself in some trouble and uh, was angry, quite angry about the consequences that he was facing. And so once I cooled him down a little bit and we were talking, I was talking to him about his anger. And I said, listen, buddy, you have got to remember to talk back to your anger, okay? And you've got to learn to say no to it. And when, without missing a beat, he looked at me. He responded, Dad, I'm trying, but, but my anger just won't listen to me. <laughs> and it's so loud that I can't talk over it. And I, I mean, immediately was broken to pieces in my heart. I was like, oh, buddy, <laughs> I, know how that, I know how that feels. My son felt stuck. He, he felt stuck. What are those areas for you? Does anger have a grip on you? 
Do you feel spiritually dry, joyless, depressed perhaps? Do you feel that you lack direction or vision for what God has called you to do? Are you you stuck in a pattern of sin and feel like you can't get out? Wouldn't you be so relieved if God just hit the fast-forward button on that? Well, the Bible has a word for that. The Bible has a word for God hitting the fast-forward button, revival. Revival. That's my Urban Dictionary definition of revival, God hitting the fast-forward button. And I didn't make that up, all right? I got it from Ray Ortland, and I'm just going to read you what he said, all right? Here's what he says. He defines revival like this. Revival is a season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. Revival is seasonal, he writes, not perennial. God causes it, we do not. It's the normal ministry of the gospel, not something eccentric or even different from what the church is always charged to do. What sets revival apart is simply that our usual efforts greatly accelerate in their spiritual effects. God hits the fast forward button. Now, I don't know what you think about revival or what your experience has been with revival. And to be clear, there are plenty of unbiblical notions about it, but we can set all those aside this morning and sink our teeth into one passage where God shares with us what it looks like to experience revival. That's what this psalm is about. So without further ado, follow along in your Bibles as I read all of Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation Toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Verse 8 Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes. The Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The very words of God. Would you join me in a brief prayer that he would help us understand and apply them this morning? Father, we come before you and ask you now to bless the preaching of your word. These are 
your words to your people, us. And in them, there's life and health and wholeness, goodness. Your goodness is inked on these pages for us. And you've brought us to this passage this morning to do good to us, to refresh the weary, to encourage the faint-hearted, to bring back those who are wandering. And those are things only you can do. So we ask you now by the power of your spirit through your word to do those very things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to persuade you. I want to persuade you from this passage to pray and prepare for revival. Pray and prepare for revival. I'm sure you've got a long list of things you're praying for. I I want you to add revival to that list, all right? And then I want you to prepare your heart so that when God gives it, you are ready to receive it. Ask him for it and expect it. Psalm 85 has been fine-tuned by God himself to invite us to pray and prepare for revival. Now I want to show you that under three headings. I'm going to give them to you as we go. Three points. Point number one. Revival is our family history. Revival is our family history. Now we don't know the exact situation in which this psalm was written, and that's by design. The Psalms were meant to be timeless for God's people, songs that they could draw from at at any time when needed. But, But this Psalm is written in a moment of distress. That much is clear. A moment of distress. God's God's people are feeling God's displeasure. And so what do they do first? First thing they do, they call their family history to mind. Look back at verse one. Lord, you were favorable to your land. This is what you've done before. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. They're calling their family history to mind. Israel's history was a history of God solving their problems. And in particular, we're going to see here, even problems that they themselves created. But we see it in the Exodus, right? The afflicted Israelites liberated from Egypt and sent on their way to the promised land. We see it in the exile later on. God punished his unfaithful people by sending them into captivity to the Assyrians and Babylonians, only to one day bring them back. You can pretty much drop into any part of the Old Testament, and what you will find is God showing grace to his people, his people for a season responding to that grace faithfully, and then eventually trailing off, falling away. God disciplines them and brings them back. That happens over and over and over and over again, and that's what the psalmist starts by calling to mind. Whatever trouble he and his fellow Israelites are facing, they remember that in the past, God has rescued them from those troubles. And here, God is forgiving them. Right? He's atoning for their sins in verses 1, 2, and 3. He's turning away from his wrath and anger against them. And, and thanks be to God that he rescues us even when the problems are our fault. He takes responsibility. And notice, too, he doesn't already, right in the beginning, he doesn't just get them out of trouble. Not just get them out of trouble. Verse 3, excuse me, verse 1. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. There's prosperity here, undeserved blessing and peace. And so what, you, what you, can, you and I can capture from these first three verses 
is that the history of God's people is a history of revival. A history of revival. At the the time of affliction, we feel as good as dead. But God brings us back to life graciously and mercifully by by turning us away from our sins and turning us back to him. Because that's the problem. That's the occasion that revival solves. Revival isn't really about the culture and what's wrong with the culture. Revival is first and foremost about what's wrong with the church. It starts with us. And that's not only true in the Old Testament, okay? What do we find in the New Testament? We, we find a Savior who says, I came to bring people from death to abundant life. I, I came to bring sinners back to God and give them life. We find the apostles describing salvation as being dead in our trespasses, but then made alive together with Christ, revived into Christ. We find moments like in Acts chapter 2, which I'm sure you all uh, remember, 3,000 souls made alive together with Christ in a moment, right? Fast forward button. (laughs) A deep repentance and sorrow over their sin, followed by joy and faith and forgiveness and reconciliation. We find the Apostle Paul instructing us to be, as we've been praying this morning, regularly filled with the Holy Spirit. That's regular, spiritual, personal revival. That's the request. And listen, if you look into church history, find the same thing. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 20th century British preacher, said the history of the church is a history of revivals. Why is there a church at all? Because God revives people. Why is your church here? Each one of you here who are Christians are proof that God is in the business of bringing spiritually dead people back to life. And then sustaining them. Your church is the culmination of hundreds of instances of revival. God has done it over and over and over again. And listen, we have to have a good memory. We've got to have a good memory of revival in the past so that we don't lose heart in the present. A good memory. It may seem like today's troubles won't go away. This is a pitfall we could slip into. It may seem like Your troubles today won't go away. My life will never change. It won't improve. And we can only believe that if we stop looking at the past. Because God has proven over and over again that he doesn't leave his people in the pits. I want you to listen to just one account from church history. This is Jonathan Edwards, the 1700s, New England. He'd labored faithfully for years at this point with little fruit to show for it. Here's how he describes the rapid acceleration of God's work in his town. If this doesn't get you excited, I don't know if I can help you. (laughs) Listen to what he writes. This work of God, as it was carried on, and the number of true saints multiplied, soon made a glorious alteration in the town. That's a great phrase. (laughs) A glorious alteration of the town, so that in the spring and summer following, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It, was, it never was so full of love nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them, parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, and husbands over their wives, and wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies, he writes, were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager 
to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly were in general, from time to time, in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. God has done that many times before. Our family of churches, the partnership we've been celebrating this morning, birthed out of the Jesus movement in the 70s, okay? People came to Christ in droves. They were grieved by their sin, running to the Savior, devoting their lives to local churches and global missions, churches established, music. The partnership we're enjoying today really is the fruit of that revival. And God forbid that we forget that. Don't forget the times that God has revived his people in the past. Don't forget the times he has revived you personally. Your conversion. Moments in your life when you were deeply grieved by sin and yet deeply delighted in your salvation. When God seemed near to you beyond a shadow of a doubt. Call those times to mind. Call them to mind for the first way, the first way that God helps us pray and prepare for revival is by reminding us that he has done it over and over and over again in the past, and he doesn't change. He's going to do it again. Revival's our family history and our personal history. Point number two. Revival is our present need. Revival is our present need. After an opening reflection on the history of revival, the psalmist brings us right into the present, and he's got a request on his lips. He's asking God to do it again. Verse 4, restore us again. Not restore us for the first time. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. The psalmist sees clearly here what I mentioned earlier. His people's present sufferings are the result of their sin. Now, That's not always the case. There are innocent sufferers in the world, but that's not in view here. Not in view here. The primary reason we need to seek revival as Christians is because we backslide. Over time, we get entangled with sin. It chokes out our spiritual life, and we need God to intervene. I'll just give you one professor and author, Richard Lovelace. He wrote an excellent book on revival entitled Dynamics of Spiritual Life. I want you to listen to what he writes about the relationship between our sin and the need for revival. Here's what he writes. Revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life after a period of corporate decline. Periods of spiritual decline occur in history because the gravity of indwelling sin keeps pulling believers first into formal religion and eventually then into open apostasy, falling away completely. Periods of awakening, he writes, alternate with these as God graciously breathes new life into his people. But sin amongst the people of God is the occasion that brings about the need for revival. It's God's discipline. God's discipline is what makes you and I interested in revival, okay? He disciplines us not not so that we have to pay the penalty for our sins. 
The aim of his discipline is restoration, right? It's to get us back. He leaves us dissatisfied so that we will return to him. That's why, and this is, oh, this is helpful to see, when you feel spiritually dry, that's a gift from God. If that dissatisfies you and you begin asking questions and like, what can I do about this? That's good. That, that's the first sign of spiritual life. Yeah. <laughs> even, even those feelings of spiritual dryness, though they are disciplined from the Lord, are a gift if you see them that way. He leaves us dissatisfied so that we will return to him. And verses four through seven here show his discipline is working. His people are fed up with how miserable their lives have become, so fed up that they're finally doing what they should have done in the first place, seeking their God. And the accent here lands not on their sin, though of course it's important, but the expectation that he is going to relieve their discomfort. Even the rhetorical questions there in verse five are meant to reassure us of God's forgiveness. Will you be angry with us forever? I mean, of course not. Of course not. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? No. They knew the answer to those questions. Those questions were them speaking to their own souls as much as to God. And we, oh, we know the answer to those questions too. Don't we? I mean, how do we know? How do we know that God won't be angry with us forever? You and I know that, right? We know that he won't be angry with us forever because because he already poured out the wrath that we deserve for our sins on his son on Calvary. He didn't hold back one drop. Jesus drank the whole cup. There is no wrath that remains for God's people. No wrath. And that's how we know that we will again experience his favor. God won't be angry with us forever. He's already dealt with his anger towards us for our sins. And we will again experience his favor. Listen, revival, you want to prepare for revival? Get fed up with yourself. Okay? Revival comes to people who are fed up with themselves, who see their sin as their biggest problem, who stop blaming everybody else, stop blaming the culture, stop blaming the government, and realize that they really are their own worst enemy. The sin that still dwells with them, that they're still wrestling against, that is the biggest problem they are facing. The person that understands that, oh, they're ready for revival. The first clear sign of revival, person who says, Lord, I've gotten myself into this mess. Can you please get me out of it? That's a heart that's ready for revival. I I would like to be a person like that. (laughs) Thankfully, in my church, I'm among people like that. I believe this morning, I am among people like that who are fed up with themselves and want to see God do something new and fresh and rescue them. Because only those kinds of people would ask the question of verse six, which is the beating heart at the center of this psalm. Only people who are fed up with themselves would ask of the Lord, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That word right there means to make alive, to come to life. That's the request. Lord, I've been feasting on death. I've been feasting on it, indulging in sin, and it is draining my spiritual life. Will you please intervene? 
please intervene and bring me back to life. Make me alive again. And again, the psalmist here doesn't even need to answer his question, does he? Because we know the answer. We know the answer. Is God going to make us alive again? Resounding yes. Will God bring us back to a place where we rejoice and delight in him again? Of course he will. Those people should respect, expect the request of verse 7 to be realized. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. You only ask God for things you believe he'll give to you. So show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us again your salvation. We cannot, as God's people, we cannot out God's love for us. We can't backslide so far down the mountain that he can't reach down and save us. And he's already proved that he wouldn't be angry with us forever. It's there, again, on Calvary's Hill. He shows us most clearly his steadfast love and salvation. And then, through the indestructible life of Jesus Christ risen from the dead, he promises to give us life forevermore. I mean, if Jesus can't be killed, if he can't die, then neither can we. Amen. We will live. The resurrection is the promise. He will revive us. You know what revival will look like in people like you and me? It will look like rejoicing. Revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. People who are rejoicing. It will look like people who are broken by their sin and failures, who feel the weight of sin, but but are also so grateful for God's forgiveness and healing. It will look like an eager repentance, a real humility, a confidence to approach God, deeper devotion to him. Those are the hallmarks of revival. And that is our, at the moment, most pressing need. We don't need the world out there to get fixed. You know, the church can prosper even if the world is falling apart. Okay? We can prosper even if the world is falling apart. What do we need? What do we need on account of our miseries because of sin, indwelling sin? We need to be revived. What do churches who are marked by disunity and strife and disagreement need? They need revival. What do cities filled with depressed and addicted and angry people need? They need revival. The need for revival is present. It's ongoing. I mean, just think think of other people in your life this morning, people who are struggling, who you have tried to help. We have all got a list. People in your small group, family members and friends who are wrecking their lives. Coworkers. I wrestle with this a lot. How do I protect myself from discouragement when I try to help those people and it doesn't seem to help? Everything I've tried to do to help them hasn't worked. I have to come back and read the psalm and I need to remember that God can do in a moment what I can't do in a lifetime. God can do in a moment for those people what I couldn't do for them in a lifetime. And if part of my program for them isn't asking him to do that, then I'm missing something. (laughs) How tragic would it be if I didn't have because I didn't ask? That's why it's important that we ask. Revival, revival for us, for the people around us, for our city, always a present need, one that God is glad to fulfill. And our role in it is to ask and ask and ask and ask And then wait and wait and wait and trust and expect until he's ready to give it. 
That's our role in revival. Point number three, heading number three. Revival is our future state. Revival is our future state. As we arrive at verse 8, the psalmist finishes his requests and he begins to listen. Verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. And what does God say? Next line. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Words of comfort to sinners, right? Words of comfort from God to his people. The word of God to his people is one of peace. And what God speaks, he brings into existence. Peace for his people. The word of God in the New Testament, Jesus Christ came to speak and secure peace for us. And he's done it. We have peace with God, the ultimate comfort for sinners. Spoken peace to his people. But next line, a little warning in there. Let them not turn back to folly. As God does good to us by reviving us yet again, a brief warning, a quick warning, don't go back. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't turn back to those things that I just rescued you from, that reek of death. Don't go back to what got you in this mess in the first place. Verse 9. Surely, hear the confidence in these words. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Okay. The glory there. That glory is God's glory. God's presence among his people. That's, that's what they fear when they begin to sin. That God will leave them and abandon them. And so the word of peace that they hear reminds them that God will not leave them. He will restore them and part of that restoration will then them again being confident that God is with them and among them. It's then salvation for those who fear God. Salvation is safety from the dangers that can wreck our lives, namely sin and death. And salvation is the restoration of our relationship with God himself. And to be near God is to be alive. These verses now, we have moved from past to present need now to future forward-looking. That's what these verses are. That's what verses 10 to 13 describe. A blissful future. Oh, listen to these. A blissful future where verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Perfect compliments. Who wouldn't want to live in a land of steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace? That sounds great. That sounds like a real vacation. And those are characteristic of a place where God reigns supreme because those are the hallmarks of him. Verse 11, faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Now we're talking about the earth. The sky is heaven. The ground is earth. When God is at peace with his people, all of creation is at peace. Right? We know this from the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, where creation itself is groaning and awaiting our redemption. Even heaven and earth get a taste of the peace. Verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good 
and our land will yield its increase. Verse 13, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Think again of this psalm. The psalmist has moved from history to present problems and struggles and needs to future forward thinking and then to confidence. That's where he ends up. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. He's so confident now. So confident that God is going to do good. And as you pray and seek revival, pray for and seek revival, you will find your confidence in God growing as well. Israel here was hoping, of course, for a physical land with agricultural abundance, but but we know that the promised land becomes much bigger in the New Testament, much bigger than a fertile strip of land in the Middle East. The, The eternal promised land is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, a future land where revival is constant. You don't need revival because you're living revival in this future world. That's what verses 10 through 13 describe. That is a land of revival, where revival is the norm. Life and death, life abounds, death is dead. Harmony with God, harmony with creation itself, harmony with one another. That's what those verses describe. The future world is a world of revival. And instances of revival now are a taste of that future. You don't get the whole thing? (laughs) Revival is a taste of the future. That wonderful world breaking in now. And we should expect tastes of that future in our lifetime as God prepares us for that future. He wants us to have an appetite for steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace. That's what he's preparing us for and giving us foretastes of it now. That's precisely what revival is. Listen, it's no use pining for the past. We should remember the past, but we don't need to get stuck wishing we were back in the good old days. I so appreciate uh, John Piper's comments on this from Future Grace. Listen to what he writes about the past and the future. The only life I have left to live is future life. The past is not in my hands to offer or alter. It's gone. Not even God will change the past. All the expectations of God are future expectations. All the possibilities of faith And love are future possibilities. And all the power, this is what we're getting to here, all the power that touches me with help to live in love is future power. As precious as the bygone blessings of God may be, if he leaves me only with the memory of those and not with the promise of more, I will be undone. My hope for future goodness and future glory is future grace. And we draw inspiration from the past. And we need to learn the lessons of the past, just like the psalmist did here. But we aren't asking God to repeat the past verbatim. God's going to do something unique for you. He's going to do something unique for us. It won't be out of character. It won't violate his word. We can't force him to do it. The winds of revival blow according to his will. 
But we do need to set our sails so that when the wind blows, we catch it. Because guess what? You can miss out on revival. You can miss it. If your heart is not ready, you can miss it. So we need to set our sails so that when the winds of revival blow, we catch it. We can pray, we can prepare, we can wait expectantly so that when he does it, we will be ready. And we'll be so grateful when he finally answers, we'll be changed. My friends, how badly, how badly do you want to see God hit the fast forward button? Because you got to want it, all right? You got to want it, kid. You got to want it. How badly do you want God to hit the fast forward? forward button? Are you eager for the Holy Spirit to accelerate and intensify the work that he's doing in your life? Would you love, would you love to see the gospel ministry of this church surge forward with extraordinary effectiveness here in Tucson? Are there unbelievers in your life who you'd love to see radically saved and come to find that life that you have already begun to taste in Jesus Christ? If so, if you want that, then pray and prepare for revival.